Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. This morning we are talking to Rothi Karim Aldina, and his new book is Building an Inclusive Organization, Leveraging the Power of a Diverse Workforce. Diversity is not just an HR issue. It is a business issue. Leaders need to understand how diversity and inclusion can help them by having a greater number of perspectives. Rafi highlights how to remove unconscious bias from company processes, including recruitment and selection, make the case for diversity and inclusion to all stakeholders, and embed inclusion into culture and overall business planning. He's a consultant with Frost Included, working with clients to help create more inclusive workplace cultures. He's completed his undergraduate degree at Harvard University and was a Laura Warner Scholar at the Harvard Kennedy School, where he earned a master's in public policy. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Rafi. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. And um, I guess my first question is, it's it's interesting because, you know, companies, corporations always, they brag about how diverse their uh, employee population is, but what you're saying is that's really not enough. It's not just, as I said in the intro, it's not just the HR problem, but you really have to be inclusive. And and so let's start out with that. What does that mean? Yeah, so I think when companies often talk about diversity and inclusion, they talk about them as one concept, uh, but really diversity and inclusion are two different things. Diversity is about getting the right mix of people with the right skills and competencies and different skills and competencies in order to, you know, accomplish all the tasks you need to do. But inclusion is about making sure that mix works. It's about people having a sense of belonging, like they're going to be heard, like their skills are actually going to be useful and leveraged, and that they actually have not just a seat at the table, but a voice once they get there. Um, so in other ways, in other words, uh, diversity is more about the workforce, but inclusion is about the workplace. So take and, us some of the big companies, for instance, what that, that you know brag about yeah. diversity. Let's start with some of the. I know you know you can Facebook, Amazon. I mean Google. Uh, how does that specifically work in terms of each one of those organizations? Do they do it, or how do they do it? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people try to. So I think that there are kind of three different approaches you can take to diversity and inclusion work. The first one, which is taken by a lot of, you know, those big finance firms and consulting firms like, you know, McKinsey or Morgan Stanley, places like that, um, is much more compliance-based. It's very diversity 101. It's let's make sure that we're following all the EEOC regulations. Let's make sure we're not going to get sued. Let's do that. And that's, you know, essential, but it doesn't really do much more than that. The second phase, which is, I think, much more of what places like Facebook and Google and Amazon and and most organizations, I would say, are in this space, is what we call diversity 2.0, which is much more marketing-led. So it's trying to be like, look at the diversity of our company. Don't you want to come work for us? You'll be valued for who you are. And then they get there, and then they see that they're not actually valued for who they are. So, you know, you see places like um, Amazon or Facebook having issues with people like for example, female coders not getting the credit that they're due or um, are being held back or they have a pyramid structure in terms of um, hierarchy. So women aren't getting promoted as much. And while they might be 
they might tout the fact that they are 50% women, you know, 70% of those women are at the lowest level. And so it doesn't really do much. The third way is kind of the more effective thing, and that's what we kind of push for, and that's what we call inclusion 3.0, which is really about embedding the idea of being inclusive in the in the very fabric of the way you work. It's about trying to think about inclusion in every decision that you make in every company process. So yes, it's big things like recruitment and promotion and retention processes. It's about you know making sure flexible working is the default and that people won't be punished for it. It's about having robust parental leave policies. But then it's also about how are you running your meeting? Are you calling out people when they get interrupted or um, when someone's idea is attributed to someone else? Are you making sure that you fostered an environment where people feel like they can disagree with their boss and that making a mistake won't get them fired? And so it's these day-to-day kind of interactions that really need to change how the culture works. Are there companies that are doing that, that are, and you know, that are at the third level or 3.0, inclusion 3.0? I think some companies are moving towards that. Um, I don't think anyone's going to hit that ideal right now. Um, But I do think some companies are doing a good job. So one example of a kind of larger organization that's working on that is this uh, the Wellcome Trust in the UK. Um, they're the world's second largest funder of health and science research, uh, second after the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They give away over a billion pounds a year in research funding for science and vaccinations and things like that. And as a foundation, they really do care about making sure that the best results happen. And to get the best results, they have to have the most diverse teams. And they realize that because you need a variety of approaches to problems in order to figure out which one is the best one. So a few years ago, we started working with them and they've moved from, you know, not really thinking about diversity and inclusion that much to making it one of their core competencies of the organization and people are measured against it. They train people on how to run meetings inclusively. They keep up with the latest research around diversity and inclusion to try and figure out what are the things we can do day to day in terms of psychological safety and creating an environment where people really do feel like they belong and they have the ability to do something. So for example, Um, One of the things that they found when we did some analysis with them was that disabled employees really felt like while there was a flexible working arrangement policy, that if they took advantage of it, then they would be held back. Like they wouldn't get promoted or get raises because people would see that as them having to take advantage of this flexible working thing and that they might say that they need some sort of special treatment. And, Disabled employees, as a result, weren't making use of that. And it really impacted their ability to do their jobs or feel like they were as valued as non-disabled workers. So what they decided to do as a company then was to make flexible working the default. So you no longer had to request flexible working. It was just assumed because we're all adults who care about our work and 
that they would just get their work done. And if they didn't, that's when you would start having those conversations. But if you can assume that they're going to get their work done, then why does it matter if they do their work from home or from the office or if they leave at three o'clock for an appointment and then come back at six? Whatever works for them works. And what they found was that not only did this policy shift things for disabled workers, but it actually had an outsized effect on the entire employee base because now uh, people who had young children didn't feel bad about having to leave at three to pick up their kids from school. People who had to take care of an ailing parent or other relative or something like that didn't feel bad about having to leave in the middle of the day to take them to an appointment or even just to leave to take a break or have a baby shower or something like that. That kind of thing is, can be really, really useful. I mean, that's a great that's example. example. I think that's a really good example because and I just it made me think of something else as you're talking about, uh, you know, whether it's a baby shower, taking care of an aging parent or getting sick, somebody may, when they're hired by the company, not necessarily be someone who would be considered um, hiring somebody because of their diversity, but then suddenly they may end up in a wheelchair or they may end up taking care of an aging parent and then they become part of that population as well. So when you talk about that's that kind of, um, that that's the default way of, of, um, managing employees, I guess. And and the other thing is you talk about an unconscious bias. It's not necessarily that these companies don't want to engage in an, inclus- in an inclusive way their employees, but they're just not aware of the unconscious bias, which is obviously what the work that you're doing. Yeah. 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 And it's, you know, the awareness is one thing. It's one thing to, I think people have talked about the term unconscious bias a lot. People know it exists now, but not as many people are starting to talk about their unconscious biases. I know in the interview you did just before, just before me, I was listening in a little bit and um, the, they were talking about being vulnerable and being um, kind of authentic to yourself and being willing to kind of say, you know, my life isn't perfect. And, you know, this is what my real life is like in the same way if people are, especially leaders and managers, are able to say, you know, I've taken these tests to find out where my unconscious biases lie. I recognize that I must have some. These might be some of the areas in which I have them. And, you know, I'm working on it and I need help from you guys to make sure to call me out when something might be happening. Um, That can be really, really powerful for that minority group employee who is listening to that because it's, it's a validation of their life, of their experience. Um, and that can be really, really powerful for making them feel comfortable that they can be totally themselves when they're at work, which is the way people get to be most productive. What about the, uh, I know you were at Harvard. Uh, what about the, the MBA programs, like the, you know, the top MBA programs like Harvard and Wharton and um, how, and Stanford, are they addressing these issues? Because I'm assuming that these, these uh, men and women who are getting MBAs and usually they're older, let's say 28 to 31 as they're getting their degrees. How does that fit into what we're talking about? I mean, is, is this something that's, that's new, that's a, a concept or uh, that they're introducing in, in the MBA programs? 
Um, I, you know, I think in some places they're talking about it a little bit, but often it's, you know, as an elective process or it's, you know, a si- another course they can take on the side about diversity and inclusion in business. And I don't know how many schools are doing that. I know at the Harvard Business School, um, one of my former professors is teaching a course in that space. But often the people who end up taking those courses are the people who already know about it. You know, there are the the black business school students, the female business school students who already have that experience of of that unconscious bias working against them. The people who need to be taking it the most, the people who may not be as aware of those biases are not the people who end up taking them for the most part. What I think would be more effective is if they just start weaving ideas around diversity and inclusion into their courses as they already exist. So, you know, that can make a lot of sense in terms of, you know, their management training class. But it also applies in terms of things like statistics and accounting and things like that. Because, you know, the way that someone thinks about how to test if something is statistically significant or how to determine which particular groups are actually going to respond to um, a particular product, then the idea that not having a diverse group or at least a group that you're testing on that's representative of your consumer base, that's ridiculous. It just doesn't make any sense. It's not effective. But they need to be thinking about those things if they want to create businesses or work for businesses that are actually going to survive and thrive in the long term. Let me ask you this, just personally, I always like to kind of get the personal story too. What, how did you become interested in, in <laughs> this pretty, in this particular topic? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's, it's a bit of a weird kind of winding story. Um, I was kind of, I, I grew up in Northwestern Canada in a town outside of the city of Edmonton in Alberta. <laughs> And um, the town I grew up in was very white. Um, my, you know, my junior high was 650 people, and there were two brown kids, me and my cousin. And, you know, just to give you an idea of where I was, and I, it didn't really impact me very much when I was really young, but my first week of middle school was September 2001, and the September 11th attacks happened. And... Immediately after that were the, the first real experiences of me understanding that I, above my own race, I guess, and my religion, and how those were different, and started to get a little bit vilified, briefly. And um, I think that that's kind of where the idea of trying to break down these barriers and break that maybe a little bit of ignorance down uh, came from. But I didn't really think about doing that as a career until much later on. And when I was in university, um, I, uh, so I actually started as an astrophysics major. Um, I thought I wanted to be an astronaut. And uh, then I very quickly realized that I was not really capable of doing that. Um, for a lot of reasons, my math skills being one of them. But um, when I switched out of that, I was trying to figure out what to do, and I was taking a bunch of random courses, and I ended up taking this course called Girl Talk, 
which was about what it's like to grow up as a preteen and an adolescent girl in contemporary America. Okay, so and this was, was at me. Harvard? Sorry. This was at yes, Harvard? Yes, this was at Harvard. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so it was me and five other first-year women and a female professor from the sociology department. And it completely changed my life. It just flipped over the way that I looked at the world. And I had no idea that walking down the street as a man and walking down the street as a woman were two completely different experiences. And it made me really angry. It, I got angry about you know, the injustices that I had thought our society we're had moved past. Yeah. But I also got angry about the fact that I had lived for 19 years and had never known that this was the case. And that nobody I knew ever really talked about that. And it was reflective of the kind of experience that I felt as a brown Muslim guy in a really white neighborhood. And so I decided I wanted to learn more about this. And I started taking more classes and talking to people a lot more. And eventually I worked as a research assistant for a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School, a woman named Hannah Riley Bowles. And she does research around unconscious gender and racial biases in negotiations. And so I started working for her and um, eventually she decided to give me a full-time job after I graduated. And she was the one who kind of took that passion that I had been developing around this topic and turning it into a career path. And so I started working in academia in that space um, with her for a while and then realized that I wanted to go into more of the application side and that's how I ended up working with Frost Included. And so, I mean, talk about a transformative experience. Girl Talk at Harvard was the course that did it for you. Yeah, it really was. It was the, it was the course that changed the way I think about every aspect of the way I live my life, which I think is just really, like, it's, it's a mind, it was a mind-blowing class for me. And then working with Professor Bowles, was the one that turned that into something I could actually do something with. And it was those two, those, there are, I feel like there are very few things where you can point to them and say, that's where everything changed. That's where the turning point was. But those are definitely two of them in my life. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, and you're talking about Canada, I think I had two Canadian, uh, my first guest was also from Canada. Um, and, you know, uh, being only two people two young people, person, people of brown, as you say, or a big white school, but you were also really smart. How did that come into play? I mean, I, I, you know, obviously if you got into Harvard, you were, you know, middle school, high school, you academically, you had to do really well. So, um, you know, I always find that interesting because you seem to be as having talking to you for the, having talked to you for the past half hour, like, the kind of person who could really, whatever you decided you wanted to do, you and you go after it, you would be able, to, well, maybe not an astronaut. I guess maybe that's not true, right? You couldn't be an astronaut. <laughs> but, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but, but given your, I guess, what happened to you after 9-11 in school, you also had that, how did that extra 
I don't know what you would call it, an attribute, but being so smart, intelligent, how did that help you to sort of overcome some of this stuff in, in school? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you. Um, um, I think I think it was a combination of a lot of things. I mean, I I feel like underlying that kind of, you know, getting good grades and things like that was just, I'm just a very curious person. I really want to understand why things are the way they are. Why do people act the way they act? Why do trees grow the way they do? Why do stars exist the way they exist? Things like that. Like they're, they're all, that is just interesting to me. Um, and so I think that curiosity is what drove kind of both of these things. Cause when I, you know, when I would experience some sort of racist comment or something like that, you know, my response to that, I could have, I guess it could easily have been something like anger or violence or something like that. And I think that would have been maybe even justified to some degree, certainly understandable. But I think because of how curious a person I was and am, um, my response instead was, huh, I wonder why you decided to say that. I wonder why you have the thought that makes you say that in the first place. What's going on there? What's that process that's making that happen? And so that's kind of where it came from. And I think that in the work that I do, that really helps because a lot of the people that we're talking with, a lot of the time we're trying to get these, you know, these C-suite leaders of big companies on board with being more inclusive and understanding that they might not be. And these are really intelligent people often, but on this topic, they're a little bit ignorant and they might say something like, I think the colored groups are just whining or something like that, which is definitely a comment I've actually heard before um, and stuff like that. And I could be, and yeah, that's an offensive comment, but it's, it's helpful, I think, for me that my gut instinct there is to be like, okay, what makes you say that? Why is that? Why do you think it's whining? Why do you decide to use that terminology? What is, what's driving that? What's, what's been your experience that makes you feel that way? Why are you angry or upset by this concept? Because um, there's all of this evidence and data that shows that it's useful. So why are you resisting it? And trying to explore that cognitive dissonance is, for me, really personally fulfilling, in addition to just being interesting. I think curiosity, I hadn't I thought about it in that way, but that's a really good word, uh, you know, when people are challenging you in that way, and instead of fighting back or getting angry, becoming curious, like, why are they behaving that way? Or, you know, all of the things that you just described. Only a couple minutes left. Give us a website uh, where we can get more information about you and about your book. We can buy it on Amazon, I assume, bookstores everywhere. But, uh, yeah, give us some websites. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you can find me. I'm on Facebook, Rafi Aladina, R-A-A-F-I, Aladina, A-L-I-D-I-N-A. Um, I'm also on Twitter, R Aladina, um, and on LinkedIn and things like that. Um, we also, our company website has some stuff about me, and you can contact us through there at frostincluded.com. 
And uh, you can find the book on Amazon, in bookstores, um, and you can also buy it on our publisher's website, koganpage.co.uk, which is K-O-G-A-N-P-A-G-E.co.uk, um, because they're a British publisher. And that book is Building an Inclusive Organization. Rafi, thanks so much for being on the show today. Great show. Really like talking Thank to you. you. Thank you so much. You. It was a pleasure to yep. speak with you. Rafi Karim Aladina, and I'm going to say the name of his book again, Building an Inclusive Organization, Leveraging the Power of a Diverse Workforce. Thanks. Thank you so much. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 